Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. I mentioned last week that we are picking up 1 Timothy again. And it is hard to talk about 1 Timothy chapter 1 and the grace of God without talking about John Newton from the late 1700s. This man was a sinner, a man who, of course, did not deserve to be saved. Our Freedom in Christ is a very powerful thing. The freedom that we have in Jesus Christ is powerful. It was bought at a great price, the very death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And those who have made the greatest difference for Christ are those who understand how precious that freedom in Jesus Christ is. Before John Newton died, he told someone this. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I remember that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Those are the kind of words that you expect out of a great preacher. But John Newton was not your ordinary preacher. He had indeed been a great sinner. On his gravestone in England are engraved these words, John Newton, clerk, meaning preacher, that's how they spoke back then, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying on his gravestone, John Newton declared before God and man, before everyone, that he had been a very immoral man. He's saying, I engaged in impure activities. That's what he means with the words infidel and libertine. And John was declaring that he had bought and sold human flesh for profit, that he had actively belittled, ridiculed, and tried to destroy the faith of other people that they had in God. John Newton was not a nice man before Jesus Christ. But we don't remember him because of the terrible things that he did in his life as much as we do the song that he wrote. It's one of the most popular songs ever written. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And in that beautiful song, in those beautiful words, John Newton was declaring that he had no right before God or man to be saved. He was a wretch of a man, but the grace of God had rescued him. God had found him. God had cleansed him. John Newton lived the words of the song he wrote. He lived a life that was very much like the life of the apostle Paul. Now, if you know the story, John and his ship, the Greyhound, were overwhelmed by a brutal storm. John woke up to find his cabin filled with water. And what followed was a nine-hour nightmare where John and the men on his ship struggled to keep the ship from falling apart. For nine hours, they battled. For nine hours, the crews manned those manual pumps that they had back then. Here's how they fixed the holes. 
They took clothes and bedding, shoving it into the holes and, and stuffing them in and then taking boards and nailing them to that. At one point, John Newton was lashed to the wheel of the ship to help steer. That's when you know you're in trouble. It was bitter cold, and this storm just seemed to rage on and on and on. And Newton was given a short time to go below, and he found a Bible, and he began to read it. And Newton said, I concluded my sins were too great, too powerful, too great to be forgiven. I waited with fear and impatience to receive my doom. But when he heard the glad news that the ship was freed of water, Newton said, I began to pray. To think of that Jesus that I had so often derided, I recollected his death, a death for sins not his own, but as I remembered for the sake of those who should put their trust in him. Paul had his own testimony, didn't he? The Apostle Paul had a powerful testimony for Jesus Christ. Join me this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where we pick it up with verse 12. Paul writes, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Just as John Newton was led to express his praise and song to the amazing grace of God, Paul has this same exact reaction here. An outburst of praise for the mercy shown to him. This is the right response of the mature believer in Christ. This is the proper response. An outburst of praise to God for his grace. Not living ungrateful. Not being ungrateful for the grace of God, but amazed at the grace of God at work in our lives. See, Paul still has those men who are distorting the gospel in the back of his mind. But he's about to show us the foolishness of what men like this teach. And when Paul knew, Paul knew very, very clearly what the grace of God had done in his life. If Paul was going to be true to what he believed, he had to say something. Because God's grace and love are to compel us to proclaim Jesus Christ. So he starts with this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. Very basic, very simple, very direct. And notice it's in the present tense. Present tense. He starts with, I keep thanking God. Paul kept thanking God. It didn't get old to him. He never got tired of thanking God for the work that he had done because he says, Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me. See, Paul is pointing back in time to a point where the strength of God was imparted to him. The one who equipped Paul for service in the power of the Holy Spirit was Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ is the one who sent us the Spirit. And look at the reason, he says, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, the idea of faithful here is trustworthy, trustworthy. It wasn't his knowledge. I mean, Paul was smart. It wasn't his education, although Paul was very educated. And it wasn't necessarily that Paul came from a good family. Yes, Paul came from a good family. It, it wasn't even his IQ. Paul was counted faithful by God. We have in our minds a distorted list of what God is looking for in his people. But Paul is saying, God chose to use me because he counted me faithful. 
Now, he's not being boastful. He's not being arrogant about this. He's talking about ministry here. And he's saying, I got chosen by God to be used because I was faithful. Philippians 2.13 says it is God who works in us. And over in 2 Corinthians 3.5, we read from Paul, he writes this, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from who? God. Of all people, Paul knew this, our sufficiency comes from God. But Paul also knew that once redeemed by his grace, Paul would continue to live in that grace. By the power of Christ living in him, Paul would be faithful to the work that God had called him to. Be faithful, Christian, to the work that God has called you to. That's the application. Paul said this over in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So hear that principle, Christian. When God's Call is upon his people to a work. God equips. God enables the people to serve. He's never going to ask you to do something. He's never going to call you to do something. He hasn't first given you the ability to do. And look at what Paul says about himself, starting in verse 13 of our text. He lays it all out there. He says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. God's grace and love filled Paul to overflowing. That's the sense of the language here. He's overflowing with God's grace here. Paul appreciates that grace. Paul is thankful that God in his grace chose him to serve. God looked at the motivations of the heart and said, this is a man I can trust with my work. I can trust this guy. He may not look the best. Sorry, you may not look the best. I may not look the best. And and Paul, he's going to need my strength. But grace is in his life. My power, God was saying, Paul was faithful. See, God doesn't want you to be the most capable person on the planet. He wants you to be the most faithful person. There was a time when Paul used to chase down Christians wherever he could find them. So he could arrest and even kill these Christians. He blasphemed the name of Christ. He brutalized the followers of Jesus Christ. Paul denied the deity of Christ. He forced others to deny the deity of Christ. Paul believed that he must destroy the Christian faith in order to protect the Jewish faith. Paul would reject Christ's messianic claims and label Jesus as an imposter. Paul hunted down Christians He was an insolent man, a violent man. Paul was filled with arrogant pride. Paul is not exaggerating how bad his sin was before Christ. What does Luke say in Acts 8.1? When Stephen was stoned to death for believing in Jesus, it says this. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And then just a few verses later, we read in verse 3 of Acts 8. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Acts 9.1, 
Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And consider Paul's own testimony. He said this in Acts 26, verse 11. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Acts 22, 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. You see, over and over, Paul is talking about his persecution and murder of Christians. I do not want you to whitewash in your head how bad Paul was before Jesus Christ. His sin stunk it up bad. Acts 26, verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then over in Galatians 1.13, you remember the words, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul was a hard man. Paul was a tough man. He was a hard man, a self-righteous murderer. I wonder if we'd welcome him here. He got extradition papers from the Sanhedrin so he could go to Damascus and persecute the Christians there. But then Paul was shown mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, let's be careful with that terminology. His ignorance did not excuse him. And your ignorance before God does not excuse you. All that Paul is saying with this is that I didn't know better. Why? Because the Old Testament made a distinction between those who sinned because they were ignorant of the truth and people who knew better and went ahead and sinned anyways. The Old Testament calls it the sin of a high hand when a person knowingly defies God. And this is why in Luke we see that Jesus on the cross, it says in Luke 23, 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. See, Paul thought he was helping God. It wasn't like he knew Christ, then chose to work against him. God got a hold of Paul, brought Paul to faith, and gave him love. The grace of God did what the law of God could never do. Grace of God always does what the law of God could never do. It changed his life completely. I hope it's changed your life completely. It turned a serial killer into the powerful servant of God that we see in scriptures, that we love and cherish as the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was grateful. Paul understood God's grace. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, meaning God's grace overflowed on Paul and covered all his sins and in came faith and love flowing into Paul's life, which are in Christ Jesus. Paul had blasphemed the name of Christ, denied the Christian faith, hated Christians, but the grace of God overcame it all. And Paul says in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. Paul was literally at a loss of words to describe the grace of God at work in his life. By God's grace, Paul was able to believe on Christ for salvation with love for the Savior. And then verse 15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is one of the great gospel texts of the New Testament. 
It's a fantastic verse. This single sentence has been used to encourage countless souls on their way to Jesus Christ. One of those souls would be Thomas Bilney during the Reformation, known as Little Bilney, because he was a, a small man. Born in 1495, he was a smart man. He studied law at Cambridge, but that didn't bring him any peace. Then he began to read the Latin translation of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Here is how he described it in his own words. I want you to read these with me. He says this, I chanced upon this sentence of Paul in 1 Timothy 1. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leap for joy, Psalm 51. And after this, the scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than the honey or the honeycomb. 1527, Bilney was arrested and forced to recant, but little Bilney couldn't contain himself. The grace of God was still working in his life, and he set off preaching again in 1531. Arrested again, he was tried, and then he was burned at the stake. Now, his most famous convert, you might have heard of, Hugh Latimer. He became a leading preacher of the Word of God in England at the time. He spoke often about the need for an English translation of the Bible. Now, this was a dangerous move in that day. Even Tyndale's translation by this point in time had been banned. Latimer died at the stake in Oxford in 1555. You see, 1 Timothy 1.15 has had monumental effects on the saints who have gone before. It has impacted God's people deeply, and it should have. It's the shorthand version of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something, it should have that same kind of impact on your life. If it doesn't, something's wrong. Something's wrong. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. These words were probably repeated often in the New Testament churches. These were well-known words to the Christians. See, Paul is writing about his sheer wonder and gratitude over his experience of God's grace. Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is the good news. This is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we trusted Christ as our Savior from sin, we were ambushed by God's amazing grace. Praise be to Jesus. Christ paid a debt I couldn't pay, you couldn't pay, no one can pay. The debt of our sin. I cried. 1993. That's when I got saved. I cried. I cried when I first saw this truth in the Word of God. Tears of gratitude for the grace so freely given, even though I never deserved it. The thought of what God did for me humbles me, and it certainly humbled the Apostle Paul. Paul doesn't say, I was the worst sinner in the past. He said, I am chief of sinners, what? Present tense. A humble man in Jesus Christ knows his sin, even as a mature believer in Jesus Christ. Paul understood his desperate need for Christ every single day. See, you're not done with Christ once you got saved. A humble man understands his need for Christ every single day. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Let me say it like this. If you have no problem obeying God, if you have his same standard of holiness, if you never sin, then you don't need Jesus Christ. But the rest of us in this room do. Christ came to die for sinners. One of the things I love about Alaska is days like yesterday. That will get me an amen, right? Oh, glory. It was a beautiful day yesterday. That sun was out, warming up, snow was melting. And I love the clean air in Alaska. The air up here is unbelievable how clean it is. See, I have a lot of lung problems, so clean air is kind of important to me. I get in on that action. I, I use it every day. I take a lot of it. I suck it in. I love clean air. Do. It's a thing. You might catch on to that, too. I also love it when the days are getting longer. I love it when the days are getting longer. I love to feel that sun on my solar panel. I love that. I love it when the light starts shining in my house. But then you start to see the dust floating in the air. Right? (laughs) The air looked so clean before. Then there's more than you could ever see before. Now, we wash our windows every fall at our home. Now, it's going to surprise a lot of you to know this, but that's my job. I love washing windows. I almost washed windows once when I was in Bible college on skyscrapers for a job because I love washing windows that much. It's therapeutic to me. I love to wash a window. It's great. That's my job. But when the light comes back at this time of year, do you know what happens? I'm upset because I'm amazed at how dirty my windows got over winter. That happens. Hear me. That's how it is when God draws men to salvation. See, the light of God, his word, and his spirit start to show us just how unclean and dirty we are before him. That's why Paul could say this, God's light has shown on me and I have looked in my heart and I know, I know, I know what is there. I'm the worst. Because the more you understand the grace of God, the more aware of your own sin you become. God uses people of faith. God uses people with humility who are deeply aware of their own sin and the need to walk in his grace. Some of my favorite words in this entire epistle coming up next. Let's pick it up in verse 16. It says, however, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern. Love that as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Say it with me. Amen. The patience of God shown to Paul is an example to all who would believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. God chose to use Paul as a demonstration of his amazing grace. The transformation in his life was so dramatic that Acts 9 teaches us that the Jerusalem church thought it was a trick. They didn't want him around. They had a hard time welcoming this guy into the the church. They feared him. I would too. They feared him at first. 
Paul stood before the generations of mankind as a witness to the power and the grace of God and the love of God. Because God can change the worst of sinners. He changed my life. He can change yours too. God can change the worst of sinners into one of the most effective servants of him. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. And this is why, Christian, your testimony of what Christ has done in your life is so important. It matters that you share your testimony. Maybe you've heard of this man. Not many people have these days. It's long ago. This man was Tokichi Ishii. He was hung for murder back in Tokyo in 1918, a long time ago. This guy was a wild man. He'd been sent to prison more than 20 times. 20 times. He was a cruel man. One time after he attacked a prison official, he was gagged and he was bound and his body was suspended so that his toes could just barely reach the ground. But he still, even being tortured, refused to apologize for what he had done. No one could get through to this man just before being sentenced to death. That's what they decided they had to do to get him out of the way. He was sent a New Testament by two Christian missionaries, and he began to read the story of the trial and the execution of Jesus Christ. And he couldn't get past the words in Luke 23 where Christ said this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That one sentence transformed his life. His words, he says this, I stopped. I was stabbed to the heart as if by a five-inch nail. Shall I call it the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I don't know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakable, grateful heart, I believed. I believed. That's a powerful example of God's word, even if a believer doesn't know how to describe the work of God in his life. Tokichi was sentenced to death, and he accepted it. He understood the consequence of sin. He understood that he still had his human consequences from his sin in this world. And he accepted it as the fair and impartial judgment of God. And now the word of God had brought him faith and was sustaining him in a new way. And near the end of his life, he said, people will say that I must have a very sorrowful heart because I'm daily awaiting the execution of the death sentence. He said, this is not the case. I feel neither sorrow, nor distress, nor any pain. Locked up in a prison cell, six feet by nine in size, I am infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning when I did not know God. He says, day and night, I'm talking with Jesus. You see, in a small prison cell, he found more joy, more hope, and more peace than most Christians I know, because we have the prison cells of stuff. We're too liberated, and we're entrapped by the world. And for him, all that came down to was the Word of God and Jesus Christ. That should be enough. When he died, Tokichi died with great humility, and his last words were this, My soul, purified today, returns to the city of God. Just like the apostle God, through his grace, reached a man that was vile, that was the worst of sinners. God's grace can reach anybody. 
Now, Paul was convinced of this truth. This is what drove his missionary heart. And then you see in verse 17 that Paul just could not contain himself. He couldn't. He burst out into a word of praise. He says to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. King eternal, God is sovereign. Immortal, God's nature does not change. He is eternal, invisible. God is above his creation. To him belongs the glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul had a reason for referring to the work of God in his life. Why was this put in 1 Timothy? Why is this here? Let's bring it back to context. He wanted to encourage Timothy to be faithful to the ministry that God had entrusted to him. Because when Timothy was at Ephesus, no man could be as difficult as Paul had been. But the very fact that God transformed him shows that God can do the same to anyone. God's love is deeper than our sin. So here comes the instruction in our last three verses. We read starting in verse 18. He says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I deliver to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. At one point in time, there had been prophecies made about Timothy and his ministry, words given from God defining what kind of person Timothy would become. And Timothy was to fight the good fight, wage the good warfare. This charge for Timothy goes back to verse 3 and verse 5. Timothy was to think about the prophecies first made about him and be encouraged to continue in the faith. Continue with a good conscience in the doctrine and knowledge of Christ. Some had rejected this. Some had shipwrecked the faith. Meaning, what does that mean? It means people who are teaching things contrary to the doctrines of the apostles, things that had been handed down by the apostles as the word of God. Their doctrine had drifted in these men, and they were now on the rocks. And Paul, he calls two men to the carpet. Hymenius, we read again in, of in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul said this, he said, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, who are strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. And we know of two men named Alexander in Scripture connected with Ephesus. If I had to guess, Paul meant the one referred to in 2 Timothy 4.14 where Paul said this, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. See, why is all this here? Well, Paul was telling Timothy, I handed these men over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is life outside of the church fellowship. This is life outside of the church fellowship. These men that Paul mentions had been leaders, teachers in the church. I told you last week that I believe the problem in Timothy was that the leaders had gone astray in the church. These men had been leaders and teachers in the church. And these are some strong words here, but words that echo the words from Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul was instructing to remove people from the church. 
So you don't hear many sermons on this anymore. People don't want to talk about that anymore, removing people from a church. But it has happened in my ministry in the past. And it will probably happen again here. So you need to pay attention to these words, Christians. Now the goal is repentance of the wayward believer. It's never, ever to punish. Over in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul told the church this. Watch this. It says, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. No, we'd brush over our sin, drive home, and go out to eat. No, Paul says, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy. What? But admonish him as a brother. And then notice this back in our text in verse 20. Paul wanted them to watch the word. It says, learn, learn not to blaspheme. This is God's discipline of believers. This was the final step of church discipline because they had a stubborn refusal to change. You see, these guys had stopped following what God had said, and they went their own way. Paul wanted them out of the fellowship of believers because people like that are dangerous. They can lead other people astray. He wanted them out until they learned to turn back to Christ. It's kind of like being in a new city and not listening to the directions on your phone. You can follow the maps on your phone, or you can ignore it and end up somewhere that you didn't really want to go. I did that in Dallas once. I was on the phone with Angie, baby, and I was trying to be so smart, trying to be so prideful. I didn't want to go down this toll road, didn't want to pay a toll. And I thought I could figure out how to get back to my hotel room without paying for the toll road. I didn't listen to the directions on my phone. And you know where I almost ended up? I almost ended up in Houston. So I finally surrendered because my wife was on the phone telling me, just follow the maps, follow the maps, follow the maps. And I listened eventually, eventually I listened to the directions given. And within a little bit, guess what? I was back at my hotel eating those frozen burritos that I shouldn't have been eating. But we're talking about the word of God, not Google Maps. When we choose to listen to the apostolic teaching found in the word of God, we have no problems getting where we want to go in our faith. But if we choose to ignore it, we can get turned around. We can get in all sorts of trouble. But even then, it's like the Holy Spirit is saying to our conscience, recalculating, recalculating, recalculating to get us back on track. See, the Bible is God's GPS for our lives. So we fight the good fight, willing to follow his directions. All we need to do is believe and follow his directions with gratitude for the work of Jesus Christ in us, with humility, knowing his love and his faith. So that is how, going forward, we stand together as a church. Because like the church at Ephesus, there will be some that come here looking to divide. There will be some coming here looking to divide, wanting attention, wanting to be up front. And there'll be those who look to destroy our fellowship in Christ. So we follow Paul. We follow Paul, grateful for the grace of God, painfully aware with humility of our own sin, believing what God has said in his word, willing to listen to his directions as we navigate through life. Dan Schaefer, a pastor down in Santa Barbara, California, he humbly 
wrote about childhood experience that he had. When he was just eight years old, Dan was with his friend. That's how you get into trouble when you're young. You go off with your friends. Their victim at the time didn't know what was happening. They were throwing rocks towards a young boy. Dan and his friend didn't think much about it. It was fun to them. They were having a blast. Dan says the boy was sitting on a bicycle about 40 feet from us. And he says that alone amazed me because I hadn't believed that a blind boy would be able to ride a bike. And he didn't ride far, but there he was, our target, our victim. And Dan writes, the boy who introduced me to this adventure was a little older than I, but clearly a veteran of past campaigns against the one on the bike. And at first I hadn't wanted to join in, but only because I wasn't sure he was really blind because no adult was in sight and it was clear the boy couldn't see us. So I soon joined in sailing all my rocks around him, confusing this boy and scaring him half to death. Our giggling gave our position away because he turned to us and pleaded, stop it, stop it, please don't do that. You're not a very nice person to do this to a blind person. That please had little effect on my partner. But I, on the other hand, he said, didn't like it when the victim turned and talked to me. I would have been happy to slink away into oblivion, but for some reason I didn't. In short, I did not stop. Soon our victim began to cry. He was helpless and he knew it. And I now wonder how it would have turned out had I been allowed to continue. But I was fortunate, hear this part, suddenly I felt an iron clamp of a grip on my shoulders and found myself being whirled about face to face by my babysitter's enraged husband. I don't remember everything he said, but I remember feeling thoroughly ashamed. And once exposed, he said, my deed was far uglier than it had seemed while I was doing it. And listen to how Dan finishes his thoughts. He says, I stopped dangerous, cruel, and harmful activity, not because of my underdeveloped conscience, but because someone else stopped me. You want to ask me why I am so thankful for the grace of God? It is because the new life I have been given in Jesus Christ, the work of God in my life, stopped me stopped me. I am not saying I'm without sin. You can ask Angie about that. But I do know, for one, the dangerous path that I was headed down. This is why we worship. This is why we worship God. This is why we, like Paul, break out in a word of praise to the one who came to rescue us. See, both Paul and Timothy were facing incredible challenges. Paul could have devoted every spare word, every spare moment of time asking God for legitimate requests in this text. Paul could have used the space in this letter for something to talk about all he was struggling with, with the never-ending demands of ministry. But Paul took the time to praise the Lord for his faithfulness, his mercy, and his grace, because the more we understand God's grace, the more we are aware of our own sin. Paul knew he had been rescued and he shared that testimony. And I wonder if it could be that simple that we as Christians start doing the same thing, sharing the wonderful testimony that we have in Jesus Christ. Because if you're in Christ, you got one. So my question is, why aren't you sharing it?
Why aren't you sharing it? Spreading that seed of the gospel far and wide and making sure as you tell the story of Jesus that he gets all the glory. See, if you're telling the story of Jesus and he's not getting all the glory, you're doing it wrong. You're making it about yourself. And nothing in the church is about you. It's about Christ. Nothing in your ministry is about you. It's about Christ. Christ, Christ. Paul was blunt in the scriptures with who he was before Christ. Paul, like John Newton, got dirty and specific. He said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And then Paul went on to describe with graphic detail how his life had become filled with grace, faith, love, mercy, patience, and eternal life. And Paul would write, and we'll close with these words, these beautiful words. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.